The Student Voting Network podcast is produced by students at a national level. The views expressed in this podcast are not reflective of any organization affiliated with the Student Voting Network. All right, so we're here. I'll introduce myself. My name is Jamie Beasley. Um, I go to Clark Atlanta University and I'm in the Department of Political Science. And we have... Hi, I'm Gabriella Lewis. Um, I go to Emory University here in Atlanta. I'm actually originally from California, but I've been living here for the past two plus years and I'm a Georgia voter. Um, and I'm studying political science and women and gender studies. Awesome. That combination is great. I love it so much. So um, Gabby and I are here to talk about, you know, the, to talk about the Georgia voting bill and to give you all some context about what all of this even means, how important voting is, where did all of this mumbo jumbo start? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so we hope that you all enjoy this. Um, so I guess I will give you all some context, like I said. Um, so I think uh, while we're discussing this, I think it's important to like give a starting point to people, right? So that we don't assume that everyone knows and understands where voting rights came from and what that even means, right? So um, Voting Rights Act of 1965 came as a direct result of the civil rights movement in 1964, um, and both of these legislations on the federal level were very radical and unheard of because they made states do certain things, right? So because we have the 10th Amendment, states are not required to do anything because states have rights. But the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act mandated for state legislation to be geared towards making sure people have equal access to the voting polls. Um, and various other things. Right, Gabby? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the Voting Rights Act and obviously the entire civil rights movement was happening throughout the entire American South. But the state of Georgia has always been an incredibly important backbone to a lot of the work that's been done. And if I might add, just to toot my institution's horn, right? Yes, so absolutely. Um, Clark Atlanta is a part of the AUC, which is the Atlanta University Center. It is the largest consortium of Black institutions in the world. So we have Spelman College, Morehouse College, Clark Atlanta University, which used to be Clark College and Atlanta University, but they merged um, in 1981. Ooh. Hope I don't get in trouble for that. And Morehouse School of Medicine and the International Theology. I forgot the last part of that school, but it is the largest consortium of Black institutions in the whole world. And so this is fertile ground or like sacred ground for all of these um, ideas about what citizenship should look like, who's included. Um, when we talk about citizenship and what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States? And a, a lot of a big part of that is being able to participate um, through voting. Right. And so we wanted to give you all some context, um, some history behind, you know, where where does um, this advocacy for voting come from in the first place and how does it relate to us? I will say more recently, um, in 2013, actually, there was a um, Supreme Court case which drastically damaged um, voting access, um, which is Shelby County v. Holder. 
um, which is where Shelby County, Alabama, sued the um, Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, to say that the sections four and five, which are pre-clearance sections of the Voting Rights Act, were unconstitutional. Um, These two sections um, mandate that if um, a precinct changes their voting location, that it is first sent to Washington, D.C. for a preclearance. This is in areas where um, historically there are low voter turnout rates. So this is particularly in the South. So in states where these states have history of low voter turnout rates for various reasons. Right. And so this, in a lot of ways, crippled. voting access. And so again, what is, you know, really important is that we participate, right? And like moving on, like think about what that means for college students, right? Because that's why we're here, right, Gabby? Right. Yeah. So to reiterate, from the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which like folks tirelessly worked for, people like John Lewis and a variety of other Georgians, as well as also civil rights leaders across the South, worked to get uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was, you know, a very like progressive piece of policy when it comes to enfranchisement. And I think what's so interesting and obviously made the grounds for what's happening in Georgia is that in 2013, which is really, you know, not that long ago, but a lot longer than 1965, a lot of these were reversed. And so that's where we have seen the birth of the modern day voter suppression. Um, And so in a precinct that has historically suppressed voters, specifically voters of color, they were previously overlooked by the federal government and now they're not and they can kind of do what they want. Um, and so I think that kind of gets us a little bit more into the modern day um, of, of what we are actually doing in Georgia and what's actually happening. So just to give a little rundown of what's actually been happening in Georgia, it's obviously been in a really um, exciting kind of different time here in the state. First of all, in 2018 in Georgia, there was a governor's election versus Republican Brian Kemp and Democrat Stacey Abrams. Uh, This was an incredibly hard fought race. uh, And the the secretary of state at the time was Brian Kemp. So the secretary of state is obviously the person who oversees all things voting. Um, And he ended up winning over Stacey Abrams. And there was a lot of contention over that because a lot of folks were purged during the elections from the role, from the voting rolls. And there was voter suppression tactics in hand because he was currently the Secretary of State while running for governor. He becomes governor in 2018. Stacey Abrams kind of rises to fame as much as she had been doing work here over the past 10 years. Um, but she continues to really put in the work in Georgia and the country is kind of looking, us at, looking at us as a state. Um, I think that's probably fair to say, right, Jamie? <laughs> Yeah, I think Georgia um, is incredibly, um, Georgia is a purple state, right? So Gabby brought up a lot of points and I'm going to try to like stay very narrow in, in like what she said. But um, so so what you were saying about um, Brian Kemp and the Stacey Abrams race absolutely was a very controversial action, right? Um, I think as we move forward and start to think about like ways to like come up with solutions, I think is to figure out like how Brian Kemp was able to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I want to point out that what he did was not illegal. Right. It was unethical. Right. And I wanted mm-hmm. to point that out because there is language in the new voting bill that particularly points out the the position of secretary of state. Right. That um, the secretary of state position is appointed and not an elected office. Now, this, I don't want to jump too far ahead because I think we're going to get into this a little bit more, but this can be both 
a gift and a curse, right? Depending on how much work we're willing to do, right? So if we know that now this is written in legislation that this particular position is going to be appointed rather than elected, how do we as college voters, right? And very much the future, you know, Whitney Houston said we was the future in 1986, right? So we are the future, the kids are the future. So how do we, you know, make, how do we make this work for us? Yeah. Um, so knowing this, like, how do we organize around this particular issue, right? So I think that was important to point out. Totally. Doing great. Yes. Keep, keep us on the train. Yes. Keep us on the train. <laughs> so, so this uh, this election in 2018 like, really lays the foundation, I think, here in Georgia of people being like, oh, wow, things are potentially changing. Um, I came to Atlanta a little bit after 2018. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind, of, kind of feel that uh, the outsider energy of like coming here and being part of this. So then in 2020, obviously, there's this very uh, contentious election between Democrat Joe Biden and Republican Donald Trump. And Georgia ends up going blue in this election, which was the first time that Georgia had gone blue since Bill Clinton. Um, and so it, it's a huge, huge deal. And I think even for organizers in the state, this came as a bit of a surprise. Um, and obviously so much work had been done, but Democratic organizers were really, really stoked for it. And then uh, the elections don't stop there, right? Like that is, I think, the most important part about this story in Georgia and is going to get us more into this is that there were two Senate seats up for election, um, one that was on cycle and one because a former senator had stepped down. And so that there were two elections going on. And it was very likely that one of the elections was going to go to a runoff in January, but it was unknown if the second one would. And that second one ended up being because it was in such a small margin that no one won 50% uh, because there were third-party candidates, that it also went to a January runoff. So that meant that we had had all of this organizing in Georgia and all of this excitement, but there was a continuation of voting. And so then on January 5th, Georgia voters went back to the polls and they ended up voting two Democratic senators into office. However, there's a lot of context behind the such things as the jungle primary system, which is what happened with the senators. So now we have two Democratic senators, John Ossoff and Reverend Rockdale Warnock. Um, and so we're going to get into a little bit about what that jungle election system is and kind of the, the marginalization that comes along with it in a lot of regards. But before we get there, I want to back up on something. <laughs> something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this conversation about Georgia flipping blue, I think is a bit. So we'll, so because of federalism, right. And I want to like explain this out because I think for like listeners that don't all the way understand like this government, like mm -hmm. broadly, you can say something like Georgia flip blue. And then you just automatically think, you know, all parts of Georgia are totally. you know, Democrat. And then you're like, well, how did we end up with this particular bill that is, um, that has parts of, I would push back on voter suppression, but we'll put a pin in that conversation. How do we end up with a bill like this? Right. And right. so it means that when we say Georgia flips blue, it means that on the presidential level, there has not been a presidential candidate able to capture the state of Georgia since Bill Clinton. We are here now talking about this bill because our state legislature who um, drafts bills and passes bills around things like election is very much deep red, um, aligning themselves with Donald Trump's ideologies, right? So 
And then in contrast, Gabby and I both go to school in the city of Atlanta, right? And so the, while the city is extremely progressive, right? We could argue that Atlanta is a pretty progressive city, right? It's like totally. like Hollywood. There's like a mixing pot of folks here. The rest mm-hmm. of Georgia is still Not pretty so much. much red, right? And so right. you get, you know, these demographics and you get people. And this is why, I, like I'm an advocate for saying local. This is why understanding how rural parts of the country impacts everyone else right because they very much have a say in what goes on in the rest of the state right and so if you there are atlanta politicians who will tell you like the state of georgia legislation like legislatures don't like atlanta politicians because the state or the city is so progressive and it is in stark contrast to how the rest of georgia looks right so i want to point that out this senate race races were very interesting because we had two like Georgia was on fire this election period I also want to point out Georgia has literally elections every year electing something some elected office so this is your plug you know to figure out where and how you can get involved in your local and state elections because they do them every year but this year's um or 2020 senate race was interesting because we had two Senate seats up for re-election, which was unheard of, right? Like because of the staggered um, term limits that senators have, so six-year terms and that staggered, um, there is never two Senate seats up for um, re-election. And this is because Johnny Isaacson um, stepped down from his position and appointed Loeffler. Kelly Loeffler, yeah. Yeah, I remember her name. But um, (laughs) so that's how we, and then we had, um, oh Lord, what's the other senator's name? Then we had, uh, um, yep, yep, yep. You, you want it, you want it. Um, his seat was up for re-election, so this probably will never happen again. Like this, or right. very unlikely that we have two Senate seats, right? So again, this notion of like flipping Georgia blue on the federal level, absolutely, because we have two federal senators and the pres, a Democratic president captured the state of Georgia. Okay, now we can go where we were going, Gabby. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so kind of going off of the Senate races that happened in Georgia, we have what is called a jungle primary system, which basically means that uh, a whole bunch of folks can can run in the original primary race. And if none of them win 50 percent, which would ha- is what happened in November of 2020, that has to go to whoever gets the top two, then they go into this primary. And that the jungle primary system is pretty contentious and it potentially helps Democrats win in some regards, but it also potentially hurts communities a lot. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I would say um, the jungle election system is big bank takes little bank all day. Mm-hmm. It is, and some would argue that it is inherently racist, but I would point to um, Atlanta municipal politics. So Atlanta is a very black city, right? We have black city council members. We have a black mayor and have had a black mayor for a very long time. There Mm -hmm. have been multiple black people that have run for mayor and won, right? And so the conversation is not necessarily about race, but more so about class, right? So who has the funding to be seen the most? I worked on a campaign. I do not like working campaigns. It is not fun for me. But when I did do it, it was very interesting, right? I think uh, everyone should at least try to do it. It is all about how much money you can raise. And so I remember in the training specifically, uh, the trainee or trainer was saying, 
the like voters need to see someone's name or interact with someone from their campaign seven times in order for them to remember who that person is. Right. So imagine calling somebody. We were on, you know, the phone all the time asking for donations, asking for just support, (laughs) um, you know, putting flyers out, posters and all this other stuff. So seven times and this um this requires money, right? I remember reading something about the particular Senate races and the runoff, right? So the just the whole Senate races up through the runoff is the most expensive campaigns almost in the history of the country. How much money was being poured into both campaigns so that yeah. all of the senators remain relevant, right? Remain just being seen. And because we are bombarded with so much information, all the time because we're in the information age, right? With the internet and social media has such a big role in this. Paying for ads and paying for, like, I remember I was watching YouTube because sometimes I'm a YouTube junkie. And during election season, you know, you see these, you see these candidates, um, right. campaign commercials, right? All this costs money. So jungle primaries is about who is seen the most. And because they are seen the most, that is who the party nominates to be the candidate. Um, And so in a lot of ways, we all we as people, right, we as college students, we very much shape um, who is, you know, who has our attention. Right. I remember I was talking with a state senator here in Georgia. I was being interviewed and she asked about like social media. And I was saying that all of our elected officials should at some point in time be on social media like TikToks and, you know, Instagram, because how much you're seeing is um, associated too with accountability. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the jungle, I'm trying to circle it back, the jungle uh, primary system in that regard um, can be like a good thing and a bad thing because it just depends on, you know, who's willing to fund your campaign and how much money they're willing to spend and how much money, like I said, it comes into your campaign. So perspective is important, right? (laughs) Right, right. Like when anyone can enter a race, that in theory is awesome, right? That's that's what we want. We want no barrier to entry to be part of politics, to have representation. But also we have to understand that from a historical standpoint and from a, you know, uh, a money standpoint, like that's not always what happens. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. We're going to hear from our lovely sponsors and we'll be back soon. Do you love talking to other students about voting? Maybe you're new to the space and don't know where to get started. Perhaps you're the only person in your network who is regularly hosting voter drives. Not to worry, the Student Voting Network wants to support you. Join us for our monthly calls on the third Wednesday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern for the 2021 to 2022 academic year. The Student Voting Network wants to hear your voice. Visit bit.ly slash SVN Slack. Again, that's lowercase bit.ly slash SVN Slack and sign up today. Affiliate advertisements and links to other sites where goods or services are advertised are definitely endorsements insofar as we are telling you, the listener, to go check them out. How could we not be advertising things if we're plugging them directly into our podcast? The Student Voter Network takes no responsibility for the content of the ads, promises made, communist revolutions, felony disenfranchisement, or any other manifestation of revolutionary political ideologies that affect the student vote. If that occurs, please discontinue use. All right, we're back. We're back. Woohoo! So going off of this jungle primary system that we have in Georgia, I think it's important to kind of um, understand that this is by far not the only system that there is for this primary, you know, obviously primaries and at least this kind of 
so many candidates in the field and then bringing it down to one or two is, is inevitable in the election system. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about ranked choice voting. Um, ranked choice voting is the process of basically you get your ballot once and then you uh, rank multiple candidates. And there's kind of a variety of ways to do this, but usually you rank uh, about five to whatever candidates of how many there are on the, on the ballot. Um, and then from that, you have a, an election system that once, basically there's mathematical, mathematical tabulation so that the least desirable candidate uh, gets taken away, from, gets taken away. And then whatever, whoever's put their first choice votes towards that last candidate, uh, their second place vote goes into it. So that until, um, so that keeps happening until someone gets 50% of the vote. And this has been, uh, very much researched over the years and really shown to potentially be um, a version of electoral reform that lets people get what they want, right? So so often uh, we have, and in a place like Georgia and others, we have two candidates that end up um, really not being the ones that I think the vast majority of people, you know, it's only 50% of what people want. And so as much as 50% are happy, that 50% may not be, as well as also maybe that 50% isn't happy because they all have to consolidate for one type of candidate. And so ranked choice voting happened in New York City, which is one of the largest ranked choice voting elections we've ever seen in this country, as well as it has been a cornerstone of democracy in places like Australia for years and years and years. Um, and it's shown to potentially work and to potentially uh, combat this jungle primary system. And so I think uh, that goes to show that there is so much room for electoral reform in this country and that there's room for people to be satisfied and for candidates not to have to have a lot of money to be able to, to win the race. And that's what ranked choice voting has also showed us from the research that oftentimes people who may not get even uh, the, may not even get the light of day in a regular election really can be brought up and uh, actually win elections. And this is definitely an important conversation because um, with money not being tied to it, we absolutely want more college students to run for office, right? I think the best way to enact change is to do it, right? And so like you can run for office, especially municipal offices as young as 18, right? And so I think this is a good way to incorporate um, younger folks, because if we're being honest, you know, all of the people who are running the country now are in their 60s and 70s and 80s. We need some new blood, right? Like we need yeah. to, like, it's very, um, I don't want to say ironic. I don't know where to put there, but like we have, you know, these very older Americans that are running the country. Um, but if we look, you know, on the, in our communities, right, we teach, sometimes we treat older people very bad, right? And the conversation is like, oh, no, they're too old to do that, but they're running the country. So I, I think that um, that system is very much, uh, you know, we can, we can put some younger folks in office. So how, so moving like from this conversation of like the different kinds of voting, how did we even get like here to this conversation? in particular. Um, again, like circling back just to Georgia, it's literally all eyes on Georgia since prop since like last year, probably the top of last year, right? Georgia has been identified as like a competitive state, which we want. We want competitiveness um, mm -hmm. within elections because we want to see who wants to be in office bad enough, right? Incumbents um, don't necessarily feel like they have um, 
they have any threats, right? And so in Georgia, we get to see that it is clear across the board, especially in municipal elections, there's competition. So um, one thing uh, that I want to just point out is that a lot of this reform in voting has been um, based off of the big lie that Donald Trump has told, right? So that all elections are fraudulent if he is not, he and the people who he wants to win are not winning. Um, And this is very dangerous. Um, we won't get into, you know, all the dangerous things that this man has done, but that in particular is very dangerous. And so one of the things that um, we'll talk about in the next episode is what exactly is in this bill, um, this voter bill in Georgia, and how can we kind of, manu- I don't want to say maneuver around it, but very much like um, use it to our advantage, right? Use it to um, deepen democracy and use it to really figure out like how to civically engage, especially as college students. So one of the provisions in the bill, in the legislation, is that the responsibility of elections is further solidified within local election officials, right? So this is county and municipal election officials. Um, a, a lot of the power is solidified there. And so I get so many emails. Matter of fact, I will be working uh, the polls on November 1st and 2nd. Um, a lot, I get a lot of emails requesting for people to sign up to work the polls, right? And so one of the ways that we can ensure that election fraud does not happen and that we can see with our own eyes what's going on and to make sure the operation is running on all cylinders, that is the prevention of, you know, machines not working, not enough hands, you know, people physically being there to help move traffic along is to sign up to be poll workers. I think that one of the very, I don't want to say low hanging fruit, but it is one of the very um, simple ways to be civically engaged and also ensure election integrity is to figure out how to partner with your local election officials. This is having, you know, your particular organization that you volunteer with or organization that you start on campus, contact your local election official and tell them, hey, we got, you know, six or seven volunteers for the day. You get paid to do it. Uh, It's very fun. You get to meet all these, you know, different people. Of course, it's a weird time now. We all have to wear masks and things, but it's very much on the ground civic engagement. And I think that as college students, especially college students who are new to a particular area, this is a good way to start networking to see who else is in the city, to, you know, see what the people in the city um, that you're new to, what they think about, how they feel about certain things, right? It's a good way to just get out and civically engage and be a part of the community. So I charge all of y'all who are listening to this to find out who your local election official is and volunteer for both early voting and day of voting. So those are my little two cents. Gabby, do you have anything else? (laughs) No, I totally want to echo all of those sentiments. And I think, you know, the reason that we have got here is because election officials have made it more difficult for people to be involved, whether that be at the basic voting rights or that be being a poll worker or civic engagement and civics courses not being in our schools, whatever. And so I think the way that we combat that is we stay educated, we get involved in our communities. And like you're saying, Jamie, we get involved locally, not just federally, right? Like we can talk until the face turns blue about Georgia going blue and, you know, it going federally this different way. But what matters is that people get involved in their own communities, no matter how they feel about the election process. And we get out there and we vote. Participate so that your voice is heard. Participation and 
or not participating and whining is just not an option. Um, so <laughs> we have so much power, like as you know, younger folks, we have really the power to shape um, what we want our future to look like. I know sometimes it gets really grim. I find hope and like um, enjoyment from thinking about um, state and local elections because that's the meat and potatoes. The federal level, they a little crazy, but the meat and potatoes is always, you know, state and local. Like we can reach out and touch, you know, these particular elected officials. So that's you all's charge for um, for this season, if you will. Election season is literally all the time in Georgia. So um, definitely figure out how to get involved. That that's that's all I have for you all. Figure out how to get involved. And uh, next up on the program, we're going to hear more from our democracy fellows here at the Campus Vote Project to tell us about what SB 202 is, which was mass legislation that was passed earlier this year that directly affected voting. Christina, um, I'm going to give you all your own opportunities to introduce yourself, tell us, you know, a little bit about yourselves, how you're affiliated, and what you're passionate about in this space of civic engagement. So, Christina, if you want to start. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining and listening in. My name is Christina Williams. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm a senior political science major at the best HBCU in the South. Clark Atlanta University. And I'm also a democracy fellow with Campus Vote Project. And I'm just overall passionate about um, including more of our youth in the civic engagement space. Thank you, Christina and Crystal. Hi, everyone. My name is Crystal Hernandez. I'm a sophomore at GGC in Lawrenceville, Georgia. I'm also a democracy fellow. And my passion with civic engagement is definitely geared towards underrepresented communities and making sure that everyone is having the same access to vote and to make those informed choices. Great. We love to hear it, lady. So we don't have a lot of time, but a lot of material to cover. So we're going to jump right into Senate Bill 202, which has been passed. It is now law. Um, and so we want to give um, this uh, topic its full um, attention or as much attention as possible because it's very complicated and there's a lot of misinformation about what's actually in the bill and how it impacts people. Um, so I, I kind of want to change course a little bit. I am interested um, in the two of you's pers- the two of you all perspective on um, Senate Bill 202 largely as college students. Um, and both, too, as women of color, first thoughts on the bill, or when you found out all the components of the bill were being passed. My first reaction was that it's just another way to force more people out of the conversation that certain people in power don't want in the conversation. Um, I think that a lot of us were riding the high of, you know, the increased 
turnout among youth and a lot of marginalized communities, especially in Georgia. Um, and I think that a lot of people in power um, were not happy with the results and the way that Georgia was pushed into the national spotlight and how that conversation went. And I think that honestly, this was the best they could do as an act of retaliation to make sure that that couldn't happen again. And now it's just up to us to make sure that they're not successful. Yeah, I think Christina makes some great points. It definitely felt very retaliatory towards everybody in Georgia. It seemed like it was a last minute like power grab that they could do. And it just is really unfortunate. I think it's super disheartening to see all of the hard work that so many civic engagement leaders are doing in Georgia. And of course, the increased turnout, like Christina said. And it's really disheartening to see all of that hard work kind of being like brushed aside. Um, And I know a couple of like specific things in SB 202 really stood out to me, such as like the absentee voting changes and the drop boxes. I think those, especially as college students, are really being um, discriminatory towards younger adults. Thank you, ladies. Um, I definitely agree uh, with some of you all sentiments. I want to like make sure you know that we stay focused um, on college students because that's why we're here, you know, to deliver information to um, college population and maybe a little bit, you know, maybe some college administrators, some professors as well. Um, I think my initial my initial thoughts about all of about the bill were very similar to you all um, until you get into the bill. And a few things pop up, right? So we had a lot of things going on in 2020, one of which was COVID, right? And so while on the federal level, we were seeing like how COVID unfolded on the federal level, we also got to see how like individual states unfolded um, mandates or lack of mandates around COVID. And then um, how people wanted to be involved civically with changing of multiple administrations, right? So not only federally, but state. Um, I want to point out because we have, you know, college age audience that the states and localities shape processes and procedures in elections. Um, And so one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading the bill or comments about um, why the bill was passing, of course, you want to read like rationale as to why something was passed, right? The argument of why something was passed the way that it was was that um, a lot of local election officials actually wanted some of the provisions inside of the bill. Um, A few of those things were making sure that someone is timing how long it takes for someone to get from the door to the check-in booth and then the check-in booth to the actual polling machine. And at first I, I was like, okay, like this seems like an extra layer But if the argument is that there's long wait times and that there's lines outside of the door, how can we mitigate those things? And so that provision was put in to mitigate the long lines, right? And then that also is tacked on to the water and the food thing, because for some folks, that was like, that was it. They were like, no water, food in the lines, but you shouldn't need water and food in a line because you shouldn't be waiting that long to vote in the first place. Christina and Crystal, when when was the last time y'all had like a civic class or like when was civic engagement talked about in K through 12? 
maybe I'm an anomaly in the situation, but I actually was taught civic engagement at my high school. I registered to vote as soon as I turned 18 in my high school. Our social studies department, you know, always had uh, like registration forms just available in the hallway. And I think it was pretty ingrained into my school. But as I did say, you know, I guess you consider you could consider that anomaly um, because of the school I went to was college prep and, you know, more oriented towards those things. But you know, I am fully aware that that's not norm and it should be. Yeah, I think uh, we had very different experiences. I went to a great school in uh, Gwinnett County. But I don't recall anybody at a high school level telling me, you know, you are turning voting age, you should be registering to vote. And I'm a first gen student, actually. So I didn't have anyone to tell me, hey, you can vote. Or, you know, you're a US citizen, you have these rights. And it wasn't until I went to get a license at the DMV that they asked you, would you like to register to vote? Me not really thinking anything of it, I obviously clicked yes, because I was like, well, yeah, that's one of my rights, is it not? <laughs> um, and that's kind of how my experience with civic engagement has come about. Very recent, I'm only 23. So I really had no guidance. Um, and I think that's definitely something that needs reshaping in the education system. Right, thank you. And, and that's how I brought it up, because I think I think like we're dealing. So yes, while, you know, the bill is problematic and I want to say, you know, laser focus on um, college students in particular, because the conversation is that there's a difficulty in um, college students, particularly in Georgia, um, that want to vote. Right. And I want to just point out that like you are slammed at 18 with, hey, you're 18, you can vote now. And we haven't had this conversation, you know, for 13 years now or long, you know, this K through 12 time, we haven't talked about the importance of voting. And then as soon as you turn 18, it's like the weight of the world is on your shoulders and they're like, go vote. Right. And I would just like to point out in the city of Atlanta, we have um, a school board election going on now. And, and it's the last day to vote is November 2nd. But these things, like all of these things matter. So we're having conversation about like how to better equip, you know, college students. It has to be a well-rounded um, conversation. Um, Christina and I uh, did the, or really Christina, like organized the whole thing on campus beautifully. Great, great job. Amazing job. The National Voter Registration Day. And so Christina, if you want to talk about that a little bit and like kind of where people um, where people were confused, why, why they were confused. And then, um, yeah, yeah, there. <laughs> yes, thank you, Jamie. Um, one thing that always causes a lot of confusion on our campus when it comes to registering to vote is the issue of whether or not we can use our student IDs um, as valid ID. And, you know, as a private school, we cannot. Um, and that's the thing that's really common throughout Georgia. Um, if you want to make this connection from what I'm going to say, a lot, if not most of the HBCUs in Georgia are private institutions and therefore cannot use their student IDs as valid ID to register and or vote. While a lot of the larger state schools um, that are PWIs can. Um, so there's that. Um, there's also a lot of times people don't 
once they realize they can't use their student ID, they also may not have a Georgia issued ID because a lot of our students come from out of state, um, especially freshmen. And especially in this time, this was a lot, actually the majority of the school's first time on campus, even time freshmen. Um, so that was another thing. And then I know another thing that's usually challenging for us when it comes to actually voting, uh, whether during early voting or on election day, is people have a lot of um, issues finding where they can vote. And I've seen and heard about a lot of students showing up to the wrong precinct, just having the wrong information. Um, and part of that has came from, which I won't go on a tangent about this, but part of that is really linked to redistricting, which is also happening right now, and the way that, you know, our campuses are split up. Crystal, are you having some of the same issues um, on campus, like conversation um, with other students about, like, where to vote or confused about what to do or how to register? Uh, yeah, I think most of our students are having a little bit more difficulty um, registering to vote and checking the status of their voter registration. So some of the work that we have done has been specifically to target everybody who doesn't know their status registration. And so we will create these uh, like little infographics and ask people like, hey, do you mind really quick? We can check for you. It takes like two seconds. You need like two pieces of information. Um, and just because I think now, especially um, during these times, a lot of the students on our campus, they are having a little bit more difficulty if they are, like Christina said, new to Georgia. And most of our students are commuter students. So I think sometimes it becomes a little difficult to know whether they should be voting close to home or close to like our school campus. Crystal, that's interesting that you brought that up. It just made me think about like citizenship, right? Like how how do we define citizenship and like, you know, what's the scope of it? Because students that, you know, leave their hometown and come to, you know, an institution, they're part of two communities. And like, wow, um, that, that can be very difficult to navigate. So then that's like, I would say like another added layer of stress in that, you know, the student has to decide, you know, should should my voice be heard, you know, on campus or in the community that I'm a part of, you know, for the next two to four years? Or should I, you know, make efforts to go back to my community where, you know, my family is and I grew up and should my voice count there or should my voice be heard there? Um, I think that's like a larger conversation about citizenship. So I uh, plan to work for uh, the official election day on November 2nd. So I went to training a few weeks ago. And in the training, uh, my job is to do what I described earlier, which is to every few hours to time to see how long it takes for one particular person to get from the door to the um, check-in table and then from the check-in table to vote. And then if it takes longer than the allotted time, then I have to go into this tablet and alert the head office that um, it is taking uh, longer than usual, if you will, for someone to vote. And then at that point, all of the technical people and all of the folks that are a part of the operationalizing of the actual election day are now laser focused in on this one particular polling location to see what exactly is the issue. And that is to see if you know, we need more, um, we need more polling machines, 
or we need um, how, you know, how can we, um, how can we better facilitate people move faster um, through this process? And then, um, you know, to be mindful because these things are updated on the website, on the, the county website. This is for DeKalb County, which is a, um, a metro county um, outside of Atlanta. So um, in all of this particular position that I'm talking about was one that was inside of the bill. I want us to be careful about hanging on to narratives or conversations that that tax the whole bill, if you will, as suppressive, um, because through my own training and through my own personal um, experience, what is done there makes a lot of sense. You want to have some some system in place to say, you know, or some system in place to, um, you know, let people know that we need more hands or that we need more polling places, but of course this will vary by city or in a rural place, right? So for the both of you, um, whoever can start, how uh, has your administration supported student democratic engagement efforts on your campus? Have they just been more vocal? Have they, you know, allotting, allotting funding is definitely the best way to do these things because we need money to do things, right? So um, can you all talk about that experience a little bit? Yeah, we have a really great school coordinator at GGC, Miss Sherry. I'm not sure if I should say her name or not. Um, she's really good with us. It's actually the first semester that she is the coordinator for our school for the Democracy Fellows. But we have had so many hurdles with trying to get our funding and get everything up and running or as developed as a lot of the other campuses that I know that Campus Vote Project works with. But she has gone to bat for us so many times and she's really good about sending us any like scholarship opportunities or grants that we can apply to. Uh, so I really appreciate her. I think Sierra has also done a really great job of always checking in with us, making sure that we have everything that we need and even asking us for feedback regarding what school administrators can do better. So I think even just knowing that we have that safe space to talk about and that our voices are actually being heard within our administration to push, um, you know, for the rest of the campus to be vote friendly uh, is a really big deal. I think it matters a lot. I won't necessarily say that there is a lot of institutional support that the work for the work that we do on our campus. I'd say that most of the support comes from individual faculty members. Um, and individual staff members, but I don't feel that there is, again, like institutional organized support. The faculty members that do support us are great. Um, most of the funding that we get comes from partnerships that they build or grants that they apply for. Um, they help us kind of cut the red tape on campus, you know, secure spaces for events and things like that. I would say that the most support we get on an institutional level is sometimes amplifying our messages. Not always, sometimes. Um, but I think that there is a lack in that space. And, you know, something that I've been trying to organize for a while now and will probably take a little bit longer um, is to get more ins institutional support, specifically a paid staff person whose job it is, you know, to support civic engagement on campus or even an AUC consortium like partnership for civic engagement, um, things like that, because I think that it would help us be a lot more effective and organized in the long run. 
Yeah, Christina, and just to like round out your conversation for our listeners who don't know what the AEC is, the AEC is Atlanta uh, University Center, and it is made up of Parkland University, Spelman College, Morehouse College, Morris Brown, Morehouse School of Medicine, and the International Theological School. So it is the largest group of HBCUs in the entire world. Um, they all, you know, share this uh, very lovely space in the middle of downtown Atlanta, and it is the heart of um, student movement, the Atlanta student movement, and the heart of the civil rights movement. So it's very, you know, sacred, hollow grounds. Our president loves, you know, pointing that out. Um, Martin Luther King went to Morehouse College, um, just to give you, you know, like some some context of like how sacred this ground is. Um, and what Christina said is is very accurate. Um, it sometimes is a little discouraging to see how um, other things are prioritized on campus um, when we know that we know how important making sure that students' voices are heard is to us. Both Christina and I are part of the political science department, you know, so we eat, breathe, and bleed these things, and we're just you know trying to shake. The table make people also be um, as enthusiastic about civic engagement as we are. And like Christina said, like we have, you know, some rock star faculty members, Dr. Tammy Greer and Dr. Terry Platt, um, that do just a great job of like, you know, keeping us encouraged, but also like, you know, staying on us about staying on the people who we should be, you know, staying on, you know, as a student. And they do their job uh, very well on the, you know, the faculty side too like, I guess, like, wrapping up this conversation or, like, trying to round out the conversation. Um, when do students feel the most connected to the democratic process on campus, or do they feel connected at all? And democratic process, I would say across the board, right? So we have, um, I think, a good practice of civic engagement would be to look at participation rates or to be aware of participation rates of elections on school's campus, right? So like we have SGA or some form of student government. And then in a lot of ways, it is indicative of how people participate on, you know, the municipal and state level because the democratic process very well lives like on campus. If we have, you know, a student government association or some kind of elections on campus, right? And I think that's a good like point that you just made about looking at, you know, the campus space and elections there and how that can reflect engagement overall. And honestly, the engagement, as you know, at Clark Atlanta has not always been the highest. And, you know, I could theorize all day about the reasons I think there are for that. But I think something that does contribute when engagement is higher is when students feel like they have a stake in the outcome. You know, when they feel like whoever wins will actually make a difference. Because I've seen elections where people have been, you know, very energized and very involved. I've noticed it's when people actually know the candidates, know their platforms and feel a stake in the outcome and they feel that it will affect them. And I think when people feel the opposite, they don't feel like they need to participate because, you know, they won't benefit either way. What about you, Crystal? Yeah, I agree with Christina. I feel like as students, once you know that it's going to benefit everybody on campus, uh, it's a little bit easier to want to get out there and vote and listen to these uh, very charismatic fellow students tell you, uh, you know, what they want to improve on campus. 
I've personally um, witnessed an SGA election and it was very intense. Students are very passionate about what they want to see on their campus. And I love that. And like you said, I think it may be indicative of how they're voting outside of school. I think it's just one of those things that you really need to be involved. And I think this is a good start, especially for those newer students or for those younger students to kind of get their feet wet into this world of like voting and seeing an election actually happen, hearing the debates that are going on and knowing what you want out of it and what you're going to stand for. Yeah, it's really, it's it's like really, I don't want to say low hanging fruit, but it's like good practice, right? Like on the ground practice of like civic engagement. Um, you know, for a fact that um, your SGA representatives are, you know, can do amazing things on campus. And if it's communicated to them, they have, you know, that line of communication to higher administration to get what it is that students want done on campus. Um, I'll say right now in the AUC, the climate is um, interesting because uh, I don't know, at, during this time or probably like a week or so ago, Howard University in Washington, D.C., they uh, did a sit-in. They've, they've been protesting all week for unfavorable living conditions and just like terrible housing conditions. And, you know, they want to see a change. So um, in the AUC, we have uh, um, some students have created a list of demands that not necessarily um, are similar to Howard, but it has been used as a way to negotiate um, other things uh, or other improvements on campus, right? So like while they're not um, in some ways advocating for better housing because we just got housing updates literally at the beginning of the semester, they're using that space to advocate for other needs or wants from the institution. So um, I think certainly like um, engagement is there I think sometimes we have to, it is our job, you know, as democracy fellows and as people who are part of, you know, larger organizations, political scientists too, if you will, um, to kind of like help guide that conversation and put, you know, some teeth and some nails in it um, to give it, you know, some definition and some, you know, robustness and define terms. Because if you don't define the terms and conditions of your wants and your needs, that quickly becomes something else, right? People take that narrative and they turn it into something else. So I think that while Christina and I have witnessed, you know, not the most engaging um, people when, or students when it comes to SGA elections or even municipal elections, at this moment in time, there's something very interesting going on. So hopefully, you know, we can, you know, give y'all a little update on that at some other time. But um, if you all, you all can leave, you know, your lasting thoughts. And then, you know, we will leave our listeners to ponder all the great gems that we have dropped them. Well, last thoughts on SB202. Like uh, um, I think you had mentioned earlier, I agree that not every part of this bill is necessarily bad or wrong. I do think that we can get something good out of it, more specifically, making sure that nobody is wanting food or water in a voting line. Um, I don't think there's any reason at all why somebody should be waiting in line to vote for two or three hours. That just seems a little crazy to me. And I agree, I would like to see some more organization come from that. Um, so I think we can pick some parts of the bill that are meant to help everybody, even if that's not what they were written in there for. 
But I also think it's really important to continue the conversation. And especially because this was something that was passed and signed very quickly. Um, it doesn't really feel like we had much of a say in it or there was much choice around it. Um, so I think it is still important to continue this uh, conversation, to open those safe spaces and to encourage everybody to be a little bit more involved and make sure that everybody can be involved actually. I'm gonna part on the theme of, you know, just not getting discouraged. Um, of course, the bill is already passed, it's already being implemented, but I think as, you know, young and student organizers listen on the call, we should always be thinking about our next steps. And, you know, what can we still do now to make sure that people can still be, you know, educated, involved, and aware? Um, so, you know, just focusing again on the education and just making sure people know that they obviously can still vote and how they can, um, and just trying to get past those hurdles the best we can, and then also getting involved in redistricting. I know we didn't talk about that today, but super, super important. Um, and then, yeah, just always thinking two steps ahead. What we do next? Yes, beautiful. Um, folks, democracy is a do, right? So um, as, you know, 18 year olds, we can, you know, sign up to actually work election day, or you can work early, you know, voting. Um, I encourage everyone to figure out, you know, where your polling place is early, but also see if you can go to work on election day, you, you actually get paid, yes, um, or work early voting because there's nothing like, you know, being in the myth, right? You are at that moment in time, making sure that the election is running smoothly, right? And what better way to commit yourself to democracy being a do than actually going to work the actual election or early election, um, early election days. These are easy ways to be involved. Um, and again, that firsthand experience is unmatched. Um, I worked, um, I'm a little, you know, I'm a little older than some of y'all. I worked Obama's um, second presidential um, election. I worked on uh, election day and it was the most exhilarating experience ever because you get to see, you know, people come in, they're very excited about voting. Of course, you're not supposed to talk politics the day of or like, you know, while you're there. But it was just very exciting to see all the turnout. Um, but also, again, like it's to ensure that the elections are running smoothly. Um, when I was doing the training, one of the things that the lady said was like, we need more people to help us work. Like we need more hands. We need, you know, more warm bodies in here to help this process run more smoothly. So in your, you know, in your jurisdictions, in your counties, in your municipalities, even on the state, you know, level, see what you can do um, to help more, like to, you know, be hands-on. That's the best way to, you know, just jump right in and do it. So um, on that note, uh, we will leave you all to ponder all these great things that we talked about. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all soon.